Welcome to our 2020 Federalist Society Annual Western Chapters Conference here at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. My name is Lisa Zell. I'm the Vice President for the Federalist Society's Lawyers Chapters. This is our 14th year of hosting this conference at the library, and once again, we have a capacity crowd, thanks to the hard work of our Western Lawyers Chapters. Thank you all for your dedication to the Federalist Society. So we've traditionally hosted panels of a particular regional interest at this conference, but this year we decided to do something a little bit different. I know we're the Federalist Society, but this year we're gonna focus on our prodigal founding brothers, the Anti-Federalist. I'm going to let our expert panelists tell you more about these individuals and their ideas, but I will say I think you're gonna find them very relevant to the debates and discussions of today, despite the fact that they quote unquote lost the battle for the ratification of the Constitution over 230 years ago. And let me explain. The Anti-Federalist concerns about protecting individual liberties, the scope of executive power under Article II, and federalism reverberate, reverberate today. In fact, they seem very prescient with respect to the growth of the administrative state and outgrowth of executive power that these Anti-Federalists feared would turn into a kind of royal tyranny. And as you, you will hear more about today, the Anti-Federalists were not total losers in some of these debates. We would not have had the Bill of Rights without them, for example. They also drove the debate with the authors of the Federalist Papers that sharpened and framed the arguments concerning ratification of the Constitution. And today, some of the judges, some judges even cite their opinions, them in their opinions, including Justice Thomas. So I'm very excited for you to learn more about the Anti-Federalists at this conference today. And in particular, I want to thank Judge Andy Oldham for bringing this topic to my attention. I know it's a passion project of his, along with some of our other speakers and judges um, who are moderating here today. And I, know, and I know you're all gonna feel the same way by the time we wrap up later this afternoon. Whether this is your first time at this conference or even at a Federalist Society event, or if you're a veteran of most or even all of these 14 conferences, we hope you find the ideas discussed thoughtful and engaging. I also hope that you enjoy the fellowship here amongst your fellow attendees. Finally, I would like to take this time to encourage everyone to get involved with your local chapters. I know we have leaders from over a dozen chapters on the West Coast, including Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, uh, Sacramento, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Fresno, Colorado, Phoenix, Vegas, and New Mexico. Look for their chapters designated on their name tags, or uh, feel free to come up to me and I can introduce you to some of them. With that, I'd like to turn things over to Justin Gillio to introduce our first moderator. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Justin Gillio, one of the founding members of the new Fresno chapter. Today, it's my honor and privilege to introduce my former boss, Judge John K. Bush of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Bush was President Trump's second confirmed judge. But in his brief time on the bench, he has already held at least one record. According to a legal analyst on Twitter, Judge Bush has more dictionary citations in a single footnote than any other judge. <laughs> Impressive. Judge Bush's chambers are in Louisville, Kentucky where he and his kind wife, Bridget, welcome his clerks with horse racing, bourbon tasting, and an amazing Thanksgiving dinner. I highly recommend it. Prior to joining the court, Judge Bush was a partner in the Louisville office of Bingham, Greenbaum, and Dahl. 
He also served as president of the uh, Federalist Society chapter there in Louisville. He began his legal practice, though, in Washington, D.C., in an office with uh, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. Judge Bush served as a law clerk for Judge J. Smith Henley of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. He graduated summa cum laude from Vanderbilt and cum laude from Harvard Law School. Please join me in giving Judge Bush a warm West Coast welcome. Thank you, Justin. Um, yeah, well, I had some help with those dictionary definitions, uh, to say the least. But uh, I thought since we're at the Reagan Library, I would start with a famous quote from Ronald Reagan. He said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. <laughs> I'm from the government, and I'm, in fact, I'm from the federal government. And I'm here to moderate a discussion about people who didn't think the federal government could provide any help at all. We meet at a library dedicated to a man who also said that as government expands, liberty contracts, and that concentrated power has always been the enemy of liberty. He lamented that our natural inalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation from government rather than preexistent and unchanging. President Reagan further insisted that we are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. He reminded us that the federal government did not create the states, the states created the federal government. President Reagan valued history, but he also said, while I take inspiration from the past, like most Americans, I live for the future. He made a critical distinction in explaining why he loved history. He remarked, that he did not want to go back to the past, rather he wanted to go back to the past way of thinking of the future. He believed that today's Americans could benefit from understanding ideas of the past. The past is by no means perfect, but it is hubris to believe that good ideas originate only in the present. So today we go back to the past way of facing the future. The Federalist Society rightly honors, of course, the Federalists as the term Federalist was originally understood, the framers of our Constitution. But at this symposium, time is given to the other side. And in my experience, that's the way the Federalist Society does it. We'll hear the views of the anti-Federalists. Who are they and why? What did they stand for? Our first speaker, Professor Judd Campbell, will address these two introductory questions. He'll also address, as will our second speaker, uh, Dr. Roger Pilon, a third inquiry that will underpin our discussion. What ha where did the ideas of the anti-federalists come from? That is, what were their philosophical roots? Our next speaker, Dr. Michelle Kuhnmuller, will examine anti-federalist ideas in contrast to their political opponents, of course, the federalists. And finally, our last speaker, Professor Mike Rappaport, will focus on one of the most important anti-federalists of all, the writer who used the pseudonym Brutus. With Brutus as his focus, Professor Rappaport will address the extent to which anti-federalist concerns about the Constitution have or have not been realized. More broadly, he and the other speakers will address the impact of anti-federalist thought on American legal and political development. 
So let me introduce our first speaker, Judd Campbell. Professor Campbell joined the Richmond Law Faculty in 2016 after serving as the Executive Director of the Stanford Constitutional Law Center. His academic focus is First Amendment law and constitutional history. He's been published in the Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, Constitutional Commentary, and Law and History Review. After completing his JD at Stanford, he clerked for Judge Diane Sykes on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit and Judge Jose Cabranes on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Professor Campbell holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics and political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and two master's degrees from the London School of Economics where he studied as a Marshall Scholar. Let's give a warm welcome to Judd Campbell. All right, thank you so much. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Um, as the leadoff hitter, I'm gonna talk a little bit about who the Anti-Federalists were, and then I wanna dig down a bit deeper into their ideas about federalism, rights, uh, and judicial review. Um, so to get started, who were the Anti-Federalists? Uh, and the simple answer here is that they were not a homogenous group. They came from different backgrounds and they had very different perspectives. Some of them were elite, well-educated gentlemen, like Elbridge Gerry and uh, George Mason. These were people who worried a lot about democracy run amok. Um, other anti-federalists were low-born farmers, folks who feared that the Constitution would further consolidate elite power. Their immediate objectives in opposing the Constitution weren't uniform either, so some of them wanted simply to defeat ratification outright. Others wanted to have amendments that would help fix some of its problems. Uh, and a common theme also was the calling of a new constitutional convention uh, to propose new solutions. Uh, and actually, some of the Anti-Federalists ended up not even opposing the Constitution in the end after the Federalists promised that they would pass a Bill of Rights. Um, still, there's some common themes that unite a lot of different Anti-Federalist writings, uh, and I want to describe five of those here. So first, consolidation. Second, representation. Third, separation of powers. Fourth, federal administration. Uh, and fifth, the Bill of Rights. Uh, and as I describe these, many of them will sound familiar, uh, but for the second part of my remarks, I wanna argue that when we dig below the surface, we can see that the Anti-Federalists actually approached a lot of these topics with fundamentally different assumptions about constitutional governance. All right, so first, uh, the concern that I'll highlight is uh, consolidation. The Anti-Federalists thought that the Constitution would fundamentally transform American politics by shifting this locus of sovereignty and resources and political loyalties from state and local uh, governments toward the national government. Uh, and they often focus particularly on the taxing power, uh, predicting that it would not only oppress people, but also undermine the financial base of state and local governments. So the first concern here is consolidation. The second is representation. The Anti-Federalists constantly worry that the national government would be too far removed from the people. And then its leadership would, in the words of Arthur Lee, form a, quote, baneful aristocracy. 
and in this vein, they had a number of particular concerns. So House elections um, were going to be too infrequent, only every other year. House districts were going to be too large. The Senate and the President would not be directly elected. Uh, together, the Senate and the President could actually enact law by passing treaties. Uh, and then the federal anti-federalists also warned that the federal government would undermine elections by making it too hard to vote. So the second concern here was one over representation. The third concern I'll highlight was separation of powers. Uh, Anti-federalists often complained that the proposed constitution unduly blended legislative, executive, and judicial powers. Uh, and here they often mentioned in particular constitutional provisions about treaties, appointments, and impeachments. Uh, the fourth concern was federal administration. Uh, and here I'm referring to the idea of the administration in a more historical sense, which encompasses both the executive and the judiciary. So this uh, quotation from the Pennsylvania Anti-Federalist captures the seriousness of this concern. Quote, it will be the policy of this government to multiply officers in every department, judges, collectors, tax gatherers, excisemen, and the whole host of revenue officers will swarm over the land, devouring the hard earnings of the industrious like the locusts of old, impoverishing and desolating all before them. Uh, and I should just mention, Judge, there was a footnote at the bottom that said uh, Article Three judges would probably enjoy big law salaries. So. Um, the Anti-Federalists were especially paranoid about the creation of a federal military, a standing army, and the way that it might displace local militias. The final concern was over a, the lack of a Bill of Rights. Uh, so the Anti-Federalists constantly mentioned the need for protecting three rights in particular. So religious freedom, uh, the civil jury, and then freedom of the press. Um, but they also mentioned a whole host of other uh, uh, customary Anglo-American rights, like the right to a grand jury, uh, right to confrontation, right against general warrants, right to keep and bear arms, a ban on authorizing uh, monopolies, and so on. Um, now, a lot of what I've said up to this point may sound very familiar, and it also may resonate, um, particularly with folks who are drawn to a sort of small government ethos. Um, but when we dig deeper, we can find that these ideas about federalism, rights, and judicial review often don't quite map on to the way that we usually think about these topics today. And I want to cite here just at the outset three examples to drive this point home. So example one, anti-federalists called for the need for a right of conscience protecting freedom of religion, while also insisting that the new federal government should institute religious tests for office. Little weird. Anti-Federalists also insisted on the need to protect state sovereignty, while also insisting that the new federal government should commandeer state executive officials and judges. Again, a little weird. Anti-Federalists often talked about the need for enumerating federal rights and for limiting federal power, but they were deeply skeptical about judicial review. So something's off here. 
Uh, and for the remainder of my time, I want to talk about how many of the anti-federalist concerns that I've mentioned actually did fit together in an interesting and important way, but not in a way that quite maps on to the way that we usually frame these topics today. And the reason why, I think, is because the anti-federalists were committed to an approach to constitutional governance that is simply no longer possible. In my view, the thing that holds these different threads of anti-federalist writing together was an overriding need to preserve self-rule, the rule of the people themselves. We see this in really powerful ways in what anti-federalists insisted on when they claimed that we need small republics. In a small republic, the people know each other, or at least know of each other. They're from the same community, and they share a common culture. So legislators on this view aren't just some distant people that we vote on. In a more real sense, they're actually us. They are the people themselves. This is true of local juries, too. So judges are part of the government. They're potential threats to self-rule, but juries give the people themselves ultimate control in the judiciary. So here's Federal Farmer, quote, juries secure to the people at large their just and rightful control in the judicial department. The same thing is true of law enforcement too, the executive branch. The militia and the posse comitatus enabled the people themselves to directly enforce the law and maintain the peace. So again, Federal Farmer puts it nicely, quote, a militia when properly formed are the, in fact, the people themselves. Under the proposed constitution, though, all of this would be threatened. So just think back to the concerns over consolidation, representation, and the federal administration. Even the putatively representative bodies like the House of Representatives and federal juries might start to look more like a them than an us. Um, we see this concern in particular with regard to federal officers and federal judges. So here's Luther Martin, quote, all the officers for collecting taxes are to be appointed by the general government, not accountable to the states, nor is there even a security that they shall be citizens of the respective states in which they are to exercise their offices. And every question arising on their conduct are to be taken away from the courts of the different states and confined to the federal courts of the general government. So again, federal government will undermine self-rule. The same general concerns about self-rule undergird the anti-federalist views of rights too. So indeed, many of the rights themselves that they called for are actually oriented toward preserving self-rule. Here are just a few examples. The First Amendment ensures that only the people themselves through a jury can control expression. We can't give that power to an executive licensor. The Second Amendment ensures that the people themselves will not be disarmed such that they can no longer directly enforce the law and maintain the peace through established institutions like militias and the posse. Otherwise, we'd have to rely on governmental officials and standing armies to do that. 
And the Fifth Amendment right and Sixth Amendment right and Seventh Amendment right involving juries, so grand juries in the Fifth Amendment, uh, rights of a criminal jury of the vicinage in the Sixth Amendment, and the right to a civil jury in the Seventh Amendment, all are designed to ensure that the people themselves maintain control in the judiciary. So all of these provisions, they do involve protection of individual rights in an important sense, but the undergirding ethos that's tying them all together is not libertarianism, and it's not anti-majoritarianism. The undergirding ethos pulling all these themes together is self-rule. So I think we need to be really careful when we are thinking about invoking anti-federalist critiques in connection with arguments in favor of small government. The core of the anti-federalist critique wasn't that the government should do less. Rather, the argument was for a more communal conception of government as ruled by the people themselves in a way that would be impossible under a federal government and that may seem impossible today. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Campbell. Our second speaker is Dr. Roger Pallon. Dr. Pallon holds the Cato Institute's B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies. He is Cato's Vice President for Legal Affairs Emeritus, Founding Director Emeritus of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, and Founding Publisher Emeritus of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Prior to joining Cato, Dr. Pallon held five senior posts in the Reagan administration. I believe he's the only panelist today who actually served in the Reagan administration, so it's a great honor to have him here. Uh, he was a national fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, and in 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with its Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the U.S. Constitution. In 2001, Columbia University's School of General Studies awarded him its Alumni Medal of Distinction. Dr. Pallon lectures across the country and abroad and testifies often before Congress. His writings appear frequently in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, and he's a popular guest on television and radio. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Pallon. Well, thank you, John. As John said, I'm Roger Pilon. My pronouns are he, she, he, him, and it. Um, I thought that would get your attention. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to discuss the Anti-Federalists um, and the courts. Um, the um, panel it, title is the Anti-Federalists and the Founding. Um, the Founding, of course, was a long 27-year stretch running arguably from the Stamp Act crisis of 18, or 1765 to the ratification of the Bill of Rights in 1791. Uh, the Anti-Federalists uh, flourished only for a couple of years during that period, roughly from the Constitutional Convention to the um, ratification conventions. Uh, what's more, the founding was a work in progress, uh, with the Constitution a product of that evolving dialogue. Um, the Madison who uh, initially opposed a Bill of Rights, for example, was not the Madison who uh, championed one and drafted one. Um, that later Madison confidently predicted when he introduced his bill, and I quote, 
uh, that independent tribunals of justice will consider themselves in a popular manner the guardians of those rights. They will be in impenetrable bulwark against every assumption of power in the legislative or executive. So you can see how that contrasts with what just, just said with respect to the judiciary. I start with the uh, founding as a work in progress culminating in the Bill of Rights because like most who've studied it, I believe uh, the uh, anti-federalist most important contribution uh, to the founding was their demand for such a bill. They did so first because they saw the document as lacking genuine representation through its centralization of powers over a vast population. And second, because those powers were broad and vague and therefore likely to be abused. But at the same time, their distrust of the federal judiciary leaves unclear, as Jed just mentioned, just how they thought those rights would be enforced. Brutus, for example, feared that federal judges would be, quote, independent of the people, the legislature, and every power under heaven, independent even of heaven itself. Uh, yet it was charges like those that drove Federalists like Hamilton in Federalists for, uh, 78 and Madison to respond with a conception of the courts that addressed the anti-Federalist basic fear that the new Constitution would threaten their liberties. What I'm going to argue, therefore, is that um, in addition to their direct contribution of the Bill of Rights, the anti-Federalist most important indirect contribution once they saw that uh, confirmation was inevitable, was to have encouraged Federalists to a deeper understanding of the role of the courts in protecting liberty as illustrated in that Madison quote and as reflected especially in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments which hark back to our precise founding with the Declaration of Independence and the moral and political theory it outlines. That theory animated Federalists and Anti-Federalists alike. In fact, we have to note that both sides had the same basic end to secure liberty through limited government. Um, here I differ somewhat with, um, with Judd. Um, their differences were largely over means and not without reason, because there's a tension in the Declaration itself. The famous second paragraph invoking state of nature theory declares first our natural rights to liberty, uh, but then invoking social contract theory, we're told that to skewer those rights, we institute governments deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. But of course, there is the rub, consent. Absent unanimity, we have coercion, which all the hand-waving in the world, including arguments from tacit consent, will not correct. Thomas Paine put it plainly, government is a necessary evil in its worst state and intolerable one. But that's not all bad. There's a silver lining in that because once we recognize that government at bottom is a forced association, a powerful conclusion follows, namely that there's a strong presumption against doing things through government and it's presumption in favor of doing them in the private sector. 
Uh, we can fall back, of course, on second best solutions to, uh, to the consent problem. We can distinguish genuine public goods uh, from private goods, national defense, law enforcement, clean air, uh, where limiting uh, liberty is justified given the free rider problem uh, by con considerations of non-excludability and non-rivalrous consumption, as economists remind us. But those arguments won't justify the public provision of private goods like education, health care, retirement security, um, national news, all things considered. Um, public provision of those is an invitation to majoritarian tyranny. Think Obamacare. Fortunately, the framers approximated that presumption against government when they enumerated Congress's 18 legislative powers aimed variously and instrumentally at securing our rights, with the 10th Amendment making explicit what was only implicit in the enumeration, that the powers herein granted were the only powers we delegated to the federal government. Thus, by expressly limiting federal powers while reserving the rest to the states or the people, the framers spoke uh, to the core anti-federalist concern with the centralization of too much power while addressing also the concerns that gave rise to the new constitution in the first place, national security, the national debt, uh, and state interference with contracts, and free interstate commerce, for which the anti-federalist focus on local government offered no real solutions. The clearest example of how anti-federalists drove the debate is found, of course, in the Federalist Papers, where Federalists responded to anti-federalists at length. And here is the greatest contribution, as I see it, because it encouraged the, the Federalists to a deeper understanding of the powers that they had enumerated. Once they cleared that the anti-federalists could not address the structure, they therefore argued to the uh, federalists in a way that the federalists had to rethink their understanding of enumerated powers. Um, in uh, Federalist 41, for example, Madison discusses Congress's power to tax to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Wording anti-federalists feared would allow virtually unlimited power toward those ends. Madison writes, had no other enumeration or definition of the powers of the Congress been found in the Constitution than the general expressions just cited, the authors of the objection might have had some color for it. But what color can the objective have the objection have when a specification of the objects alluded to by those general terms immediately follows and is not even separated by longer pause than a semicolon. Nothing is more natural nor common than first to use a general phrase and then to explain and qualify it by recital of particulars. In other words, the terms common defense and general welfare are simply general headings. It's in the enumerated powers that follow where Congress finds the objects over which it has authority and for which it may tax. Similarly, in Federalist 42, Madison addresses anti-Federalist objections about Congress's broad and vague commerce power by pointing to its function. And again, I quote, a very material object of this power was the relief of the states from Im which import and export through other states from the improper contributions levied on them by the latter, 
in short, the, what is called today the Dormant Commerce Clause. Thus, commerce power was granted largely to ensure free interstate commerce, free especially from interference by the states. It was not a power to regulate anything and everything for any reason whatever. And in Federalist 44, Madison addresses the Necessary and Proper Clause, which especially vexed the Anti-Federalists. George Mason objected, for example, that the clause would allow Congress to constitute new crimes and extend its powers as far as it shall think proper so that the state legislatures have no security for the powers now presumed to remain to them or the people for their rights, end of quote. Madison responds that, quote, a complete digest of laws is in, on every subject to which the Constitution relates would have been impossible. But if Congress should misconstrue this or any other of its powers, the success of the usurpation will depend on the executive and judiciary departments, which are to expound and give effect to the legislative acts. Presumably, the courts would do that by policing the words necessary and proper, which, of course, has rarely happened. Madison's mention of the courts and their role in policing Congress's enumerated powers brings me finally to their role in policing rights, especially the unenumerated rights of the Ninth Amendment. Here, Madison had to respond not only to anti-federalist demands for a Bill of Rights, but to Federalists like Hamilton and Wilson, who feared that an incomplete enumeration would, would imply that rights beyond those enumerated had been conveyed to the national government. As finally drafted, the Ninth Amendment speaks directly to that concern. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That's not a mere rule of construction, as some have urged. The text is plain and clear. Unenumerated rights shall not be denied or disparaged. They're equal to enumerated rights to be enforced like enumerated rights, alluding to both state of nature and social contract theory. The amendment speaks to the rights we retained when we, re when we instituted government. You can't retain what you don't first have to be retained. Indeed, if Hamilton and Wilson were right in saying, as they did, that a Bill of Rights was unnecessary because by the logic of the matter, where powers are few, our rights are vast, are we to believe that we lost rights by adding a Bill of Rights? Indeed, would the Anti-Federalists have demanded a Bill of Rights if they thought that they'd lose rights by having one? The trouble, of course, with unenumerated rights, especially among some conservatives, is thought to be with asking judges to find and define them. But it's no answer to say that legislatures should define them because rights are counter-majoritarian checks on power. So you... Those of you in the Bickle and Bork tradition need to get woke about the Ninth Amendment. <laughs> Fortunately, the Ninth Amendment is back in play, thanks in no small part to years of Federalist Society debates. In practice, its use could easily and properly arise through the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause, 
where states have used their police power promiscuously not to protect rights, its main function, but to restrict unenumerated personal and economic rights. But in such cases, a judge doesn't have to find a right. He simply has to find no power by asking the state what rights its police power is protecting. If the state comes up empty, as it usually will, that's the end of the matter. In other words, the presumption against government, which I mentioned early on, trumps the vacuous rational basis test. Griswold v. Connecticut, its reasoning aside, is a textbook case for how that should work, for the statute at issue there protected no rights. Roe v. Wade is an altogether different case, and the Anti-Federalists assisting on a Bill of Rights, plus Madison's response in the Ninth Amendment, properly understood, helps us to see why. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pallon. Our third speaker is Michelle Kundmuller. Dr. Kuhnmuller teaches classes uh, that blend political theory, law, and literature as a member of the faculty at Old Dominion University. Professor Kuhnmuller focuses on the American founding and judiciary, ancient political thought, and the role of moderation in the health of political and legal communities. She's the author of a 2019 book on the virtue of moderation in ancient heroes, a book called Homer's Hero. She's currently working on a book regarding To Kill a Mockingbird that draws on ancient rhetoric to underscore the contribution of the civility and moderation of the American bar to the American polity as a whole. Her shorter works span the history of political thought and jurisprudence from Plato to Shakespeare to Martin Luther King Jr. Prior to joining the faculty at Old Dominion University, Professor Kuhnmuller taught in the Department of Leadership and American Studies at Christopher Newport University. She received her law degree from the University of Notre Dame in 2004 and her doctorate from the same institution in 2014. Between these degrees, she practiced law at the Chicago law firm of Wildman, Harold, Allen, and Dixon. Her undergraduate degree from Flagler College is in politics and law. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michelle Kuhnmuller. Thank you so much, it's an honor to be here. Um, so what I thought might be a little bit helpful would be to frame the, our discussion of the Anti-Federalists with the Federalists a little bit at the beginning of the day. I, I thought this would be useful uh, partially because as we all know, the Federalists won. Um, and so what we're familiar with is the product of their thought, the Constitution. And so using them as a jumping off point might be very useful. Uh, furthermore, it's far more common for us to read the Federalist papers and study the writings of say John Adams than it is for us to read the Anti-Federalists, and for that reason, I believe the Federalist arguments are just more familiar. In particular, I wanna focus on, on three things. I'm gonna focus on really the, the, the meta topic is the difference between the Anti-Federalists and the Federalists when it comes to not what we want out of government, but how we can get it. Um, not so much focusing on them as, as lawyers or as philosophers, um, but really as political scientists. What did they think was possible and how did you go about accomplishing it? Uh, because I think some of their really big agreements, disagreements occur there. And I think that we can see that there are areas where both sides were right and both sides were wrong. And that's what I'd like to bring to the table today. 
So I'm going to talk, first of all, about how their visions of Republican government differ from one another. Um, second of all, uh, how that then causes them to have very different ideas about how we can protect rights. Both groups agree that that is of paramount importance, but they think it can be done in different ways. And then finally, that in turn leads them to have a very different approach to power in government. Not necessarily more or less, um, but a very different approach to power in government. So those are my, my three overarching topics. So what did these groups think a good Republican government was going to look like? The first thing to note is that more or less, everyone has agreed that you're going to have something uh, where the people are driving the government. We're not going to have a hereditary or an aristocratic element. Um, or if we have an aristocratic element, it's not going to be a hereditary one. We'll set Hamilton off to the side for the moment. Um, and it's not going to be a pure democracy either. This is really key because when they're studying the ancients, they're seeing a lot of pure democracies that are running amok. So we know it's going to be a representative government, and their key term for that is Republican. They're looking for how do we create a good government driven by the people um, that is not a pure democracy and does not have a hereditary element. That's the problem that both groups are trying to solve. Um, they know it involves representation. Right off the bat, however, for the anti-federalists, that representation element is kind of a it's, a, it's a necessary evil in and of itself because you can't get everybody in one room. Even the states are too big for that. So how are we going to solve that problem? On the other hand, the federalists see that as a golden opportunity, a way to make government better. How do they view what this representation in a good Republican government is going to look like? Here is where the divergence really takes off. The anti-federalists want, and, and I think Judd really touched on this even if he came at it from a slightly different angle, they want a representative body that looks as much like the non-criminal segment of the public as you possibly can have. Um, they want farmers, they want businessmen, they want businessmen from different kinds of business, they want teachers, they want as much representation of as much of the middle class as they can possibly get. You see the word, um, we need representation from our yeomen, I'm screwing up the pronunciation of that word, um, as possible. They want a large middle class and they want that large middle class in the legislature and they want the differences that are um, out there in the state governments to be kind of talking to one another directly in their state legislatures. So they want um, a legislature that's as much like as possible, po the people as possible. And for that reason, right, because they think that that's what's going to get you a government that's not going to be despotic, right, because you're ruling directly over yourself, um, they want as many representatives per individual citizen as possible. So right off there, you see why a big government starts to look scary. A big country starts to look scary because the number of people who can be sit in one room and talk to each other, it's a logistical human thing. We're limited in our capacity to do that. So you need a smaller nation, smaller legislatures, so that you can have more representatives per person. Um, and you also want, you know, if, if your goal is to have a group of people that are going to represent as as, as um, in the sense of being like as possible, you want to be representing a group of people who are themselves as homogenous as possible. So if you have residents of the state of Massachusetts or residents of the state of New York, um, you have a less total 
a smaller total group of viewpoints, professions, religions, so on and so forth, to try to represent than if you have the nation as a whole. So they're thinking small country, not necessarily or, or not exclusively because they're afraid of what the federal government is going to become by nature of being a federal government, but because logistically it just doesn't work. You can't get as many people who are like the people because you have too few people sitting in the room representing and you've got too many viewpoints, too many different types of people to represent. Now, the Federalists, obviously, they take the opposite approach. They don't want representatives who are like the people. They want representatives who are better than the people. They want to refine the public perspective. They want to, you know, it's like, right now, should we, if we're going to try to solve a difficult math problem, should we vote on the answer, or should we figure who in this room, which few of us have some kind of math background, and let them solve that problem? Right? That's how the Federalists want to go at it. They want to keep it Republican, but they want to find people who are better, better educated, have better judgment, are more mature, more wise. You know, we all know that they're not sanguine about the, the extent to which that's always going to happen. Um, but they're looking for representatives who are better. And again, I'm going to take a sports analogy this time. If you want the best basketball team, do you want just people from Massachusetts or do you want people from across the country? you're going to get a better basketball team if you take people from across the country. And that's how the, the Federalists are looking at representation. And to get representation that way, you not only need to cover as much ground as possible so that you can pull the most elevated elite, not necessarily elite in any hereditary sense of the word, but elite in the sense of a natural aristocracy, um, but you also need to protect them from the people. They have to be able to do things the people don't want or at least don't want now. So you end up with much, much longer terms and not everybody coming in and out of office at the same time. So you can see there how like the, the different end results are because of very different visions of what a representative government should look like. Um, and yes, it's about size and it's about power in the national government, but it's also about the relationship between the people and their government. And the anti-federalists are working off of a very legalistic agency kind of model um, in which the government needs to be doing exactly what the people say. <clears throat> So this, in turn, leads to how they look at rights protection. They have totally different ideas about what is realistic here. The anti-federalists say you protect rights by having lawmakers who are like yourselves. If your lawmaker does what you do, has your view of the world, has your religion, wants to raise their kids the way they want to raise them, um, they're not going to do bad things to you because they're you. So, is back to that view of representation. You have rights protection by having leaders in your legislature who have genuinely your interests at heart because their interests are your interests. They're the same. Um, and so, again, small homogenous societies start to look really desirable from that perspective. Second method of getting rights protection, because they do recognize there are times when groups of people, even if relatively homogenous, will do bad things to people amongst their group. You still have the minority faction problem, as Madison puts it. Um, you do that by writing down limits on government power. So you write, the government specifically has these powers and no more. And you take terms like commerce and you take terms like tax and you cut them into bits and pieces and you say which ones your governments get and which ones your governments don't. You also write bills of rights and you specifically say things that the government are not supposed to be. 
and you separate your powers into distinct branches that have no crossover and no control over each other. So they think that those are the three mechanisms that are going to um, inhibit your legislatures from doing what evil they might still do. There's a final way that they think that you're gonna get less rights um, abridging rulers or less, less rights abridging legislatures, government more generally. And that's simply by having a more moderate or a more modest society, a more self-restrained society. Uh, part of the answer to that question, they think, is virtue. And so to the extent that the states already have um, some things that today look to us like establishment in place, they want the states to be able to continue to do that, by and large. Um, and they don't think that that's really gonna be very practical for the national government, because as a nation, we have too much religious diversity. They don't wanna see one religion enforced on somebody else, but where you do have a rel relatively homogenous community, they want the community to be able to use that to encourage um, virtue. They also want a moderate society because by means of, let's not, let's not dangle a prize in front of the would-be Caesars. And so when, they, when they're thinking about what this national government is gonna look like, you know, they've read their history. They're thinking about Caesar. They're thinking about Alexander. They're thinking about Alcibiades. If Napoleon had already happened, they'd be thinking about Napoleon. Um, and they don't want to put a prize out there for those individuals. And so they say, keep government small, keep government poor, keep it modest, keep it something that no one would really wanna do unless they were really doing it for the good of the people. Make it an awful job. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating here for the sake of making a point, but their idea is even if that power in and of itself isn't a bad thing, you put that there and you will bring forth an Alexander and he will make your life hell. So um, that's how they think you're gonna protect rights. You're gonna avoid the, f the potential future Caesars, you're gonna write it down, and you're gonna get representatives who share the interests of the people. Excuse me. So, the Federalist side of this, I think we're a bit more familiar with. You're gonna get less rights abusing by having representatives who, oh, thank you. <laughs> representatives who are smarter, who know how to solve the math problem. They're not gonna do dumb things. They're not gonna do things in a passion. They're gonna be more restrained people. Um, I mean, I just give a kind of a vulgar example. They're gonna be people who can put money in the bank and use it later. Um, they're gonna be more, have more prudence. So how do we get those kind of people to run for office? Well, we create offices that are worthy of those kinds of people. Um, we create offices that someone like George Washington would step into. Um, so that's, that's part of the answer. And they think that that inherently will help protect the people. Uh, in terms of constitutional design, this is one of the, the real points of rub between them. They, the, uh, Madison's term for what the anti-federalists want is parchment barriers, and I love that term. He says, you know, you can write down freedom of speech, you can write down freedom of whatever, you can write down all these limits, but if you don't have a government that is somehow going to actually want to check itself, it's gonna run roughshod over those parchment barriers. So write down your bills of rights till you're blue in the face, folks, but you with your little, local, small, unstable governments where you, your, your legislatures can never hold back the people when they're on a passionate impulse to tar and feather whoever. It's like, 
you know, write it down. It, for all the good it will do you. Um, those are just par mere parchment barriers is his phrase. I love that phrase. Well, even though I'm not, I think there's some truth to it. I'm not sure he's entirely right. Um, so what do the Federalists come up with? They come up with a government where you pit ambition against ambition, where you look at it, and as much as they're hoping to get that refined aristocratic leader, they say, let's imagine that you have a bunch of power-hungry folks off at our national government. How can we prevent them from, from doing bad things to people? And what you try to do is you try to create a government where different segments of the government, broadly speaking, the three branches, each have a slightly different set of interests because they get to their office in different ways. They have, they represent different segments of the public. And so they're always off kilter with one another. Each of their ambition is tied to defeating the other. And so they'll be like this self-checking machine. It's kind of a beautiful and also ugly and scary um, idea that they have for like what what do we do if you have if imagine like if you have a room full of Napoleons and Caesars and Alexanders how do you keep them from running roughshod over us lock them in a box together <laughs> and let them wear each other down first is the idea now. Um, this is really a rework of the old school idea of you have the king, you have the nobility, maybe the church, and you have the people. And each of them represents a different segment of the public. It's called a mixed government in like since Aristotle. Um, and Madison, I think, is really kind of brilliant for, and, and John Adams and others, for figuring out how we can do this without having a hereditary or a church element in our government. Um, but the anti-federalist response to that is, kind of the same as the Federalist response to them. That's nice on paper, but at the end of the day, all you're gonna do is create bigger bait and get bigger fish who are gonna eat up us little fish. Um, the final piece of the puzzle from the Federalist perspective is the compound republic. And that is, they say, you know, by, by putting in this second level of government that has this strong, that can stand on its own legs, that's not entirely dependent on the states, you, what you do is you create a, a backup system for rights protection. So you not only have your rights protection at the state's level, but now look, folks, but wait, there's more. You know, you have another set of government that can protect you. And again, those two sets of governments can check one another. And so it's check upon check without having to resort to a hereditary system. So um, in sum, they have very different ideas about how it is that you can actually get government to protect rights, a Republican government to protect rights. Um, but it's not that they're necessarily after a different goal. It's that they, they have a different idea of how you can do it. This, in turn, um, and this is my last point, really creates a different perspective on power. And, and maybe this is really obvious from what I've already said. Um, the anti-federalist perspective is, yes, this Constitution may make us rich, but it will not make us free. And therefore, it is not worth it. Um, look at the taxing powers. Look at the military powers. You, yes, Washington is awesome. They say it over and over again. Yes, Washington is awesome. We do not doubt Washington. But what follows Washington will not be Washington. And you are just creating bait. And their argument is one that really over time this will change culture. And it, it, will, it won't just change. A lot of people respond to this. Well, have you seen local government? Is it really all that much better? I think the anti-federalists would say in response to that, that's because they all want to be like the president. They all want to be like the senators. You've created this culture of power hungry, of wealth hungry, by creating this possibility. Little boys and now girls grow up, and they want to be that. 
And so we are actually a less good people. I have no idea if they're right about that, but I do think that it's a really interesting argument um, that by creating this, this government that is dependent upon desire for power to check power, um, you create possibly a, a culture that is more power hungry than it might be otherwise. Again, I'm not sure that's right, but I do find it to be a really interesting argument. Furthermore, they say, because you're going to have more diversity in this large nation and you're going to have to rule over it, you're going to end up with one of two possibilities. Either you are going to have a greater homogenization of the nation as whole, right? Because you have one set of rules governing the whole thing. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that we see some of that. Now, it may be the price we have to pay, and it may be totally worth it at the end of the day, but there's some of that. And the other thing they say is, and you will have a civil war because we are simply too different as a people, and we're not sure yet what the issue will be, but there will be a point where the culture divide will be too strong and you will have a civil war. Um, kind of hard to argue with them on that. The anti-federalists, they said, no, this federal government, we've got it worked out. We've done the math. This will work. This will solve the problem. This is how you get the best of an aristocracy combined with the best of a democracy. And we have a new science of politics. Let's try it. And you need power to fuel this. Um, and furthermore, they say, they point back to those smaller state governments. They point to their instability. They point to their inability to protect property. And they point to their inability to protect other rights. And they say, you little state governments, you're going to run roughshod over your local minorities. Well, again, it's a little bit hard not to say they were right. <laughs> um, so in conclusion, I just I think I would like to say that I, I love going back over this debate because one thing that I think I have in common with both these sets of people is that it's really good to think through these issues really deeply before um, you consider change and to think about change in an incremental way. And they are exceptionally helpful partners in thinking through this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Kuhnmuller. Our final speaker is Professor Mike Rappaport, who is the Darling Foundation Professor at the University of San Diego School of Law, where he also serves as the Director of the Center for the Study of Constitutional Originalism. Uh, Professor Rappaport's principal areas of interest are originalism, separation of powers, federalism, and supermajority rules. He teaches administrative law, constitutional law, constitutional history, and legislation. He is the author of numerous law review articles in journals such as the Yale Law Review, the Virginia Law Review, the Georgetown Law Review, and the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. And his book, Originalism and the Good Constitution, which was co-authored with John McGinnis, was published by the Harvard University Press in 2013. Professor Rappaport is a graduate of the Yale Law School, where he received a JD in DCL in Law and Political Theory. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mike Rappaport. Thank you, Judge. Uh, I want to thank the Federalist Society for inviting me and putting together what's a really great panel. So on this panel devoted to anti-federalist thought, I want to talk about one of the greatest anti-federalists, Brutus. Brutus produced an argument against ratification of the Constitution that was more sustained and at a higher level than any other anti-federalist, with the possible exception of the federal farmer. Brutus's essays were part of the debate over whether, whether New York State, which was a 
a hotbed of anti-federalism at the time, uh, should ratify the proposed Constitution. Um, significantly, Brutus's papers sparred with those of the Federalist papers written by Alexander Hamilton, with Brutus sometimes getting the better of the argument. Now, we don't know who Brutus was exactly. Um, there's a lot of different possibilities. The two leading contenders are New York State Judge Robert Yates and New York State Legislator Melanchthon Smith. Uh, not exactly well-known names. Um, although Brutus rejected the Constitution, rejected a Constitution that I believe is a good Constitution, as I, I put in the title of, of my book, um, some of his criticisms really were well taken. But I, I think what really stands out about Brutus's papers is the prescience that he exhibited about the new constitutions. Some of his predictions have turned out to be quite accurate. Well, let me start out talking about Brutus's vision for a constitutional regime. Brutus recognized that the Articles of Confederation needed to be replaced with a stronger national government. But he opposed the Constitution because he didn't believe that it sufficiently checked the new federal government. One problem with the proposed Constitution, as has been mentioned several times now, is it did not include a Bill of Rights. And on this issue, Brutus, along with the other anti-federalists, won as the Bill of Rights became the price of securing ratification of the new Constitution. But Brutus's central concern was that the new Constitution did not establish clear limits on the government. And therefore, he believed it would allow the federal government over time to exercise unlimited authority. He pointed to the federal government's broad authority over matters such as taxation, um, the unclear meaning of the necessary and proper clause, and a variety of other matters. Interestingly, though, uh, even though he was a great predictor of things, he did not really discuss the Commerce Clause. And very few of the Anti-Federalists talked about that. Well, what was bad with an unlimited national government, or what Brutus referred to as a consolidated government? Why was that bad? In Brutus's view, and as people have talked about, but let's just give you a small version of it, um, Republican government required a relatively homogeneous and small polity. Since genuine Republicanism required that the people support the policies of the government, and that would be much harder at the national level. This vision is often contrasted, again, as we, as we heard here, with that of James Madison from Federalist 10, who who argued that a large polity had the advantage of protecting minorities. Now, I have some sympathy here for both Madison and Brutus's arguments here, but I think it's worth pointing out that Brutus's vision seemed stronger when he voiced it in the 18th century, when there had not been any republics that were of a large size, right? So they just didn't have these things. How are we going to have a republic at the national level? This has never happened before. And when people really had some different notion of what republics are than, than we do today. But now let me really move to the area where I think Brutus stands out, his predictions of what things were going to be like. And I'm going to focus here on four of his predictions, although other predictions would also be worthy of this discussion. Um, Predictions I won't get into, such as 
his prediction of gerrymandering and the preemption of state taxation and, and others we could go into. The most striking feature of Brutus's essays is his anticipation of the role of the Supreme Court in the expansion of federal power. Brutus described how important the Supreme Court's unreviewable power to decide constitutional cases would be. He predicted the Supreme Court's interpretations would not be limited by the constitutional text, but would go beyond it to allow expansive interpretations of federal power. He predicted the court would have a national bias that would expand the federal government's power. And he predicted that the court's expansive interpretations would be used by Congress to enact federal statutes. For anyone who has read the Commerce Clause decisions of the New Deal and Warren Courts, such as those classifying a farmer consuming his own wheat as interstate commerce, Brutus's descriptions here seem quite prescient. Despite the correction you know, of United States versus Lopez, I think Brutus's description is largely accurate today. Brutus also predicted the 1793 case of Chisholm versus Georgia. In Chisholm, the pre-martial Supreme Court held that state sovereign immunity had been, had been abrogated by the Constitution, in particular by the extension of jurisdiction to cases where a citizen of one state sued a different state. Now the Federalists, such as Alexander Hamilton, had argued that the Constitution did not abrogate state sovereign immunity, and therefore the states had nothing to worry about. But in Chisholm, the Supreme Court contradicted Hamilton and decided that the Constitution allowed the states to be sued exactly as Brutus had predicted. Now, the outrage that Chisholm caused quickly led to the passage of the 11th Amendment. Brutus also predicted that the federal government would run a large national debt and his remedy anticipated modern calls for a balanced budget amendment. Brutus predicted the federal government would seek to borrow large sums based on future tax revenues. He believed that a large debt would be ex could be extremely burdensome on the country. And clearly here, his prediction of a large debt and its consequences was quite accurate, as I think our sadly current financial situation attests. But while Brutus believed that borrowing was dangerous, he recognized it sometimes would be necessary. So he advocated a rule that required a two-thirds supermajority to authorize borrowing. Brutus's proposed reform here is similar to modern balanced budget amendments, which also require a supermajority to run a, def a deficit. Once again here, Brutus anticipated the future. Finally, though, consider Brutus's most important prediction, that the Constitution would lead to a consolidation of the states into a single government. Now here, what one thinks of Brutus's prediction turns on how we understand the term consolidation of the states. Obviously, the states still exist, and uh, they operate state governments that pass important laws. But I don't really understand Brutus's prediction here to be denying that the states would continue to exist. Instead, I understand him to be claiming that the Constitution will not limit the federal government from enacting laws in certain areas, 
And therefore, the only limit on the federal government will be the discretion of Congress. In other words, Congress can do what it wants. The Constitution is not going to limit them. It's going to be all up to them. Now, under this definition of a consolidation of the states, I think there's a strong case for concluding that we now have a consolidated government because Congress largely has the authority to enact any policy outcome it seeks. First, under the Commerce Clause, Congress can reach a very large percentage of the activities that it would want to regulate. The scope of Congress's authority was essentially unlimited from the New Deal until the United States versus Lopez was decided. But even now, under Gonzalez versus Raich, Congress has extremely broad authority. But the Commerce Clause is just one source of Congress's power. If for some reason Congress cannot use its Commerce Clause power, it has additional authority under the spending power. Congress can promote its policies by providing grants to the states if they pass certain laws that Congress desires. That's the way we get a 21-year-old drinking age, not by a, a national law, but by a spending provision. And thus, primary school education, local farming, even family law can be regulated in this manner through spending grants. Now, while the Supreme Court has recently recognized some limits on this power, Congress still has enormous authority to achieve its policy objectives with this power. Third, Congress can also use its taxing power to influence behavior. Congress can impose taxes on activities it wants to discourage. And so long as the taxes raise some revenue, they will generally be found to be constitution, constitutional. Thus, the combination of the commerce power, the spending power, and the taxing power gives the federal government virtually unlimited power. Now, that the federal government does not use all of this power, of course, does not mean it is limited. It just means the federal government prefers not to exercise all of its power. In a very real sense, we live under a consolidated government. In the end, then, I think Brutus looks enormously prescient. He predicted significant changes as to how the country would operate under the new constitution. Now, while some of these changes certainly did operate in different ways than he imagined, and others happened probably later than he envisioned it, his predictions seem quite accurate, and it really, in some ways, better than those of Publius. We should recognize the greatness of Brutus and include him within the pantheon of those who participated in the ratification debates, right up there with the Federalist Papers and Publius. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Rappaport. Uh, we only have about 10 minutes for questions, and so I'm going to go ahead and just open it up to the audience for questions. If you could ask your questions, uh, keep them succinct, and I would ask the panelists to, to be uh, brief in their responses as well. I think we have until 11 o'clock. So um, anyone uh, with a question? Yes. Are we going to 11.15? Okay, I'm sorry, we have more time, so, but go ahead. Where are the uh, various foundations because of a Catholic pro life Democrat, I can defend everybody who doesn't go. Where are the, uh, for example, the Clinton Foundation, the Vatican segregation of power, and what is referred to as paying to play, fit into any one of the 
to put on an anti-federalist hat for a moment. I'm not sure these. Um, is there a switch, or do I just use my own voice? Okay. Um, I think the, the anti-federalists would say that's where you're really gonna pay the virtue price. Um, so the, the, if, you, if you have a smaller government that is closer to the people, that has more in common with the people, more the, the genuine people's interests at heart because they are the people, um, that you're gonna have less power hungry, less wealth hungry nation, and therefore you're gonna have more capacity to resist that. Again, I don't know if there's any truth to that argument, but I think that's what the anti-federalists would say. Um, and uh, the Federalists would say um, it's hard to pull off uh, a caper in front of a large group of people, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There has been any tendency to uh, see the Anti-Federalists and the Federalists actually complementing each other. And a professor mentioned, um, I believe, uh, the anti-federalists talking about the militia actually constituting the people. Um, and the interesting thing when you get into a discussion of the Second Amendment is, that of course, the other side wants to say that the militia is the army, it's not the people, and therefore use it to degrade the Second Amendment right to bear arms, whereas I think Professor's comment would be a supporting uh, statement, if you would, to be cited to support the people's right to bear arms. I was just wondering whether or not whether or not there's an opportunity to use for conservatives and 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 uh, interpretation to use that argument um, to support the position on the on the Second Amendment. Yeah. So I, I mean, I have two thoughts here. The first is that it's very clear uh, that the Second Amendment is not a collective state right in the sense that would uh, support simply leaving things to the the regulation of states and that's then you're done um, because the core of the importance of the militia as you just uh, evoked in your question is that the militia is the people themselves so it's not the government it, it is in fact a, a body that is apart from the government and that is the very definition uh, of a militia in contrast to a, to an army I think the thing that makes the Second Amendment debate difficult is uh, that now we actually don't have that vision of law enforcement. Uh, so we have pol professionalized police officers uh, who handle domestic matters. We have uh, professionalized military that handles uh, uh, state security and so on. And so the question that's raised in Second Amendment debates necessarily has to be a question of translation. We just don't live in the world in which these debates originally happened. And so the question becomes, how do you figure out what rights are in a modern sense when you're no longer situated in the uh, conversation around which the right was codified? John, could I respond to something Mike said? Sure. Um, the, um, in order to get this juices flowing up here on the panel. <laughs> um, the parade of horribles that you cited, Mike, are mostly post-New Deal horribles. Um, the striking thing to me is how long the Constitution did last. And uh, there's a wonderful book that gives some sense of that, um, which was published in uh, early 1932 and therefore is no longer read because we don't read any books that are published longer than five years ago. Um, and it was by um, 
by uh, Charles Warren, the late dean of uh, Harvard Law, with a wonderful title, Congress as Santa Claus. And it was a history of the uh, taxing power. Uh, and he was lamenting the growth of government. This was now early 1932. If he'd written it just a few years later, he really could have lamented it. But the striking thing to me when I read that is how little growth there was and how many examples he gave of people uh, in Congress uh, standing up for the limited Constitution. Indeed, 100 years later uh, from the, the birth of the Constitution, uh, in 1887, we see uh, 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 President Cleveland vetoing a bill for the relief of farmers in Texas suffering from a drought, a bill appropriating $10,000 for that purpose, uh, saying that uh, he could find no authorization for that in the Constitution. So it strikes me that what you have is the 1937 and after court utterly misreading the Constitution. The striking thing is how much it did hold for the 150 years. Uh, well, I wish they were all like Grover Cleveland. Um, so uh, I think it's a point, first of all, I've, I've actually read that book, so oh. <laughs> I want to get credit. Um, <laughs> but um, so uh, it's true that Brutus's prediction really doesn't come fully to term until the New Deal. Still, I think it's really quite, quite significant that, that, that he sort of accurately predicts a lot of the aspects of the New Deal. Before that, I, I don't actually agree, I think, um, with Roger about American history. What, what you actually see is sort of gradual increases in the size of the federal government. True. You get a big increase. Um, I, I mean, right away there is some, but, but you, you get a really big increase with the Civil War. Um, Only an increase well, in the federal government to restrain the states, and properly so. Okay, well, the, the federal government, the spending also from the federal government, um, so, you know, you, you get a, a, an increase, it's, it, it, it's going up by, by the 20th century, you, you get an even greater increase. Um, uh, but yes, you're, you're absolutely right that this, this only happens in, in, to the extent that Brutus is predicting it in the New Deal. But I, but I think that's an accomplishment, um, you know, that he sees that and that he sees a lot of the parameters of it. He sees how the Supreme Court is going to bless this, how the, the Supreme Court's interpretations are going to be used by Congress and uh, a lot of aspects of it. So. I think a, a really important thing to keep keep in mind when you're talking Federalist, Anti-Federalist, is then the Federalist accusation back to the Anti-Federalist, which is kind of like, well, that's all fine and good, but you're going to end up speaking various European languages and or just conquering each other. And so wouldn't this be better? One of the questions I have is kind of a, a historical question that I'll never be able to answer, which is, were the Federalists right about that? Because if the Federalists were right about that, well then, it's a darn good thing we have the Constitution we have, and it may not have been maintained as well as we like, but maybe we're living with the lesser of the set of evils we could have. Um, but if the Federalists were wrong about that, um, if we wouldn't have all ended up speaking various European languages and or conquering each other, and you have to consider how to categorize the Civil War, then the Anti-Federalists, excuse me, <clears throat> 
argument starts to look a lot better. Um, and again, I don't know definitively what the answer to that question is, but I think that that's a, a good bit of what's at stake in the kind of macro who was right question. Well, um, yeah, I, I would, sorry. Go ahead. Um, the only thing I would say is the, the, the strategy that the Federalists used in arguing for the Constitution was to say, either we're going to have the Constitution or we're going to, to basically stick with the, something like the Articles and it's all going to fall apart. I think the, the argument of the Anti-Federalists in general was not that we should keep the Articles, but that we, we should have something more moderate. So, so Brutus, for example, is very worried about the taxation power. So what does he say? Well, the first thing we ought to do is limit the federal government's taxing authority to external taxes. And then if they need some additional money, we, we, we can have some specific areas where they can tax, right? So, so the, the, the fair comparison, if we're going to compare the Federalists and, and the Federalists, and I don't want to sound like an anti-federalist here, but, but to at least to defend them in, in terms of the fair comparison is between the, 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 the actual constitution that we have versus a constitution which would have been more nationalist than the Articles of Confederation, but less nationalist than the U.S. Constitution. Sure. And, and Hamilton, of course, argued very clearly, if you don't have at least this much power in the national government, um, I'm thinking Fed 23 here, um, it'll fall apart. The, 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 the spheres in orbit around the national government, they will fall away. And so he argues you've got to have at least this much. And we've seen this much snowball. And so my question is, is he right about that? Not was there, if, if, because according to Hamilton, any intermediary position would have just replicated the problem of the Articles of the Confederation, perhaps more slowly. Um, so one thing I just want to add here is, uh, Figuring out the line of causation is hard when it comes to the Supreme Court. And the addition I want to throw on the table is Madison's observation. Uh, his prediction is that ultimately the way disputes over power are resolved are by looking to which uh, level of government has the closest attachment to the people. Um, and so if the people really want, through the cataclysm of a Great Depression, a more aggressive national intervention in the economy, they're going to get it one way or another. That's Madison's prediction that ultimately what drives government is the people's will. Uh, and I think that prediction is uh, by and large where we see the emergence of the modern administrative state is through the, through the response uh, of the national government and state governments and political parties to the cataclysm of the Great Depression. Uh, that's what Bruce Ackerman calls a constitutional moment. <laughs> Those of you who remember that debate. Any more questions from the audience? Yes, in the back. Uh, thank you uh, to all the panelists for your uh, remarks uh, this morning. Um, I'm going to ask each of you to put on your political commentator hat and go back to the early 1790s. Um, we can think of the anti-federalist, federalist debate as almost like a referendum campaign. Um, and it's one that we generally think of the Federalists as having had the better uh, argument of and having won that campaign. But if we had taken a political poll, let's assume Gallup was around back in the 1780s, at the end of the convention, and taken another poll uh, at the end of the ratification uh, process, do we th how do we think uh, political or kind of the public opinion would have shifted? Did it shift? And, uh, you know, we're also using, I mean, we, we read the, the debates between the two sides and there's a lot of arguments thrown out, but we know the political commentators now, you know, there's always a pithy 
kind of one-line explanation for it all. You know, uh, Brexit, it was immigration. Uh, it's the economy stupid, uh, things like that. So what was it that won the uh, debate uh, for the Federalists? And you get one line. <laughs> <laughs> no fair. <laughs> I'm inclined to think that it is their unwillingness to accept those kinds of terms of debate that are the reason why we are still reading them today. Um, so I'm not going to have one line, but um, <laughs> so one of the big changes that happens, I mean, so, so if you look at, at the, um, the people who are elected to the ratification conventions, it's generally thought that uh, more anti-federalists were elected. In, in other words, that the, the, the anti if there was an election <laughs> on the Constitution right after it was written, that there were more anti-federalist votes, if you will. Um, but one of the things that happens is that the, the federalists are forced to promise to, to enact a Bill of Rights. And that makes the difference in state after state where the anti-federalists were strongest. So if, if you're looking at a change, it's, it's, it's the, the Bill of Rights argument. That's the one that, that's the, the, the you know, the, 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 the Anti-Federalists had a lot of different arguments that they put forward, but that was the one that stuck. And, you know, the, the, the that the focus groups <laughs> liked the most. And so they ran with it and they were successful on that ground. The, the other arguments um, ended up not being as persuasive or as popular anyway. Well, the Bill of Rights is indeed the most visible accomplishment, but I think that the deeper issue, which Justice Thomas brings out in various opinions, is the effect that the Anti-Federalists had on urging the Federalists to rethink their understanding of what they've just written. That's why, in my remarks, I focused on those three uh, Federalist papers, 41, 42, and 44, because they address the three clauses through which we have gotten Leviathan today, the taxing power, the commerce power, and the necessary and proper clause. And so what you had from Madison in his response to the complaints from the Anti-Federalists was an effort by the Federalists, Madison here in particular, to narrow his understanding of it and therefore to offer that to future courts to um, uh, use in, um, in adjudicating cases. Now they have done it rather unevenly. You will find many cases in which they do repeat the language of Madison in those uh, numbers, but then you also have Marshall, which is a point that Mike uh, uh, makes, uh, who uh, essentially was bent on expanding federal power and often ignored the understanding that Madison had put forward. Um, so I think in some ways uh, what the situation was in 1787 and 88 paralleled the current situation over Brexit, where you have most people don't want to leave, but most people also don't like the proposed deal. And so you're sort of stuck 
in a bind. And the way they got out of it, as I read the debates, was by Federalists promising that they would add a Bill of Rights. And that was enough to flip the scale uh, in some of the key states, such that we end up both with the Constitution and then with a Bill of Rights in the first Congress. Okay, I think we're coming up on 11 o'clock. So would you all please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>